This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Sixteen At these words the reclining figure rose, and the electric light fell upon his countenance. A magnificent head, the forehead high, the glance commanding, beard white, hair abundant and falling over the shoulders. His hand rested upon the cushion of the divan from which he had just risen. He appeared perfectly calm. It was evident that his strength had been gradually undermined by illness, but his voice seemed yet powerful, as he said in English, and in a tone which evinced extreme surprise. "'Sir, I have no name.' "'Nevertheless, I know you,' replied Cyrus Harding. Captain Nemo fixed his penetrating gaze upon the engineer, as though he were about to annihilate him. Then, falling back amid the pillows of the divan, "'After all, what matters now?' he murmured. "'I am dying.' Cyrus Harding drew near the captain, and Gideon Spilett took his hand. It was of a feverish heat. Ayrton, Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb stood respectfully apart in an angle of the magnificent saloon, whose atmosphere was saturated with the electric fluid. Meanwhile Captain Nemo withdrew his hand, and motioned the engineer and the reporter to be seated. All regarded him with profound emotion. Before them they beheld that being whom they had styled the genius of the island, the powerful protector whose intervention, in so many circumstances, had been so efficacious, the benefactor to whom they owed such a debt of gratitude. Their eyes beheld a man only, and a man at the point of death, where Pencroft and Neb had expected to find an almost supernatural being. But how happened it that Cyrus Harding had recognized Captain Nemo? Why had the latter so suddenly risen on hearing this name uttered, a name which he believed known to none? The captain had resumed his position on the divan, and leaning on his arm, he regarded the engineer seated near him. "'You know the name I formerly bore, sir?' he asked. "'I do,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'and also that of this wonderful submarine vessel.' The Nautilus, said the captain with a faint smile. The Nautilus. But do you know who I am? I do. It is nevertheless many years since I have held any communication with the inhabited world. Three long years have I passed in the depth of the sea, the only place where I have found liberty. Who then can have betrayed my secret? A man who was bound to you by no tie, Captain Nemo and who, consequently, cannot be accused of treachery. The Frenchman who was cast on board my vessel by chance sixteen years since? The same. He and his two companions did not then perish in the maelstrom, in the midst of which the Nautilus was struggling? They escaped, and a book has appeared under the title of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which contains your history. "'The history of a few months only of my life,' interrupted the captain impetuously. "'It is true,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'But a few months of that strange life have sufficed to make you known, as a great criminal, doubtless,' said Captain Nemo, 
a haughty smile curling his lips. "'Yes, a rebel, perhaps an outlaw against humanity.' The engineer was silent. "'Well, sir?' "'It is not for me to judge you, Captain Nemo,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'at any rate as regards your past life. I am, with the rest of the world, ignorant of the motives which induced you to adopt this strange mode of existence, and I cannot judge of effects without knowing their causes. But what I do know is, that a beneficent hand has constantly protected us since our arrival in Lincoln Island, that we all owe our lives to a good, generous, and powerful being, and that this being so powerful, good, and generous, Captain Nemo, is yourself." "'It is I,' answered the captain simply. The engineer and the reporter rose. Their companions had drawn near, and the gratitude with which their hearts were charged was about to express itself in their gestures and words. Captain Nemo stopped them by a sign, and in a voice which betrayed more emotion than he doubtless intended to show, "'Wait till you have heard all,' he said. Footnote. The history of Captain Nemo has, in fact, been published under the title of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Here, therefore, will apply the observation already made as to the adventures of Ayrton, with regard to the discrepancy of dates. Readers should therefore refer to the note already published on this point. End of footnote. And the captain, in a few concise sentences, ran over the events of his life. His narrative was short yet he was obliged to summon up his whole remaining energy to arrive at the end. He was evidently contending against extreme weakness. Several times Cyrus Harding entreated him to repose for a while, but he shook his head, as a man to whom the morrow may never come, and when the reporter offered his assistance, "'It is useless,' he said. "'My hours are numbered.' Captain Nemo was an Indian the Prince Dakar, son of a Raja of the then independent territory of Bundelkund. His father sent him, when ten years of age, to Europe, in order that he might receive an education in all respects complete, and in the hopes that by his talents and knowledge he might one day take a leading part in raising his long-degraded and heathen country to a level with the nations of Europe. From the age of ten years to that of thirty, Prince Dakar, endowed by nature with her richest gifts of intellect, accumulated knowledge of every kind, and in science, literature, and art his researches were extensive and profound. He travelled over the whole of Europe. His rank and fortune caused him to be everywhere sought after, but the pleasures of the world had for him no attractions. Though young and possessed of every personal advantage, he was ever grave, somber even, devoured by an unquenchable thirst for knowledge, and cherishing in the recesses of his heart the hope that he might become a great and powerful ruler of a free and enlightened people. Still, for long, the love of science triumphed over all other feelings. He became an artist deeply impressed by the marvels of art, a philosopher to whom no one of the higher sciences was unknown a statesman versed in the policy of European courts. To the eyes of those who observed him superficially, he might have passed for one of those cosmopolitans, curious of knowledge, but disdaining action, one of those opulent travellers, 
haughty and cynical, who move incessantly from place to place, and are of no country. This artist, this philosopher, this man, was, however, still cherishing the hope instilled into him from his earliest days. Prince Dakar returned to Bundelkund in the year 1849. He married a noble Indian lady, who was imbued with an ambition not less ardent than that by which he was inspired. Two children were born to them, whom they tenderly loved. But domestic happiness did not prevent him from seeking to carry out the object at which he aimed. He waited an opportunity. At length, as he vainly fancied, it presented itself. Instigated by princes equally ambitious and less sagacious and more unscrupulous than he was, the people of India were persuaded that they might successfully rise against their English rulers, who had brought them out of a state of anarchy and constant warfare and misery, and had established peace and prosperity in their country. Their ignorance and gross superstition made them the facile tools of their designing chiefs. In 1857 the great Sepoy revolt broke out. Prince Dakar, under the belief that he should thereby have the opportunity of attaining the object of his long-cherished ambition, was easily drawn into it. He forthwith devoted his talents and wealth to the service of this cause. He aided it in person, he fought in the front ranks, he risked his life equally with the humblest of the wretched and misguided fanatics. He was ten times wounded in twenty engagements, seeking death but finding it not. But at length the sanguinary rebels were utterly defeated, and the atrocious mutiny was brought to an end. Never before had the British power in India been exposed to such danger, and if, as they had hoped, the sepoys had received assistance from without, the influence and supremacy in Asia of the United Kingdom would have been a thing of the past. The name of Prince Dakar was at that time well known. He had fought openly and without concealment. A price was set upon his head, but he managed to escape from his pursuers. Civilization never recedes. The law of necessity ever forces it onwards. The sepoys were vanquished, and the land of the Rajas of old fell again under the rule of England. Prince Dakar, unable to find that death he courted, returned to the mountain fastnesses of Bundukund. There, alone in the world, overcome by disappointment at the destruction of all his vain hopes, a prey to profound disgust for all human beings, filled with hatred of the civilized world, he realized the wreck of his fortune, assembled some score of his most faithful companions, and one day disappeared, leaving no trace behind. Where, then, did he seek that liberty denied him upon the inhabited earth? Under the waves, in the depths of the ocean, where none could follow. The warrior became the man of science. Upon a deserted island of the Pacific he established his dockyard, and there a submarine vessel was constructed from his designs. By methods which will at some future day be revealed, he had rendered subservient the illimitable forces of electricity which, extracted from inexhaustible sources, was employed for all the requirements of his floating equipage, as a moving, lighting, and heating agent. The sea, with its countless treasures, its myriads of fish, 
its numberless wrecks, its enormous mammalia, and not only all that nature supplied, but also all that man had lost in its depths, sufficed for every want of the prince and his crew, and thus was his most ardent desire accomplished, never again to hold communication with the earth. He named his submarine vessel the Nautilus, called himself simply Captain Nemo, and disappeared beneath the seas. During many years this strange being visited every ocean, from pole to pole. Outcast of the inhabited earth, in these unknown worlds he gathered incalculable treasures. The millions lost in the Bay of Vigo in 1702 by the galleons of Spain furnished him with a mine of inexhaustible riches which he devoted always, anonymously, in favor of those nations who fought for the independence of their country. Footnote. This refers to the insurrection of the Candiotes, who were in fact largely assisted by Captain Nemo. End of footnote. For long, however, he had held no communication with his fellow creatures, when, during the night of the 6th of November, 1866, three men were cast on board his vessel. They were a French professor, his servant, and a Canadian fisherman. These three men had been hurled overboard by a collision which had taken place between the Nautilus and the United States frigate Abraham Lincoln, which had chased her. Captain Nemo learned from this professor that the Nautilus, taken now for a gigantic mammal of the whale species, now for a submarine vessel carrying a crew of pirates, was sought for in every sea. He might have returned these three men to the ocean, from whence chance had brought them in contact with his mysterious existence. Instead of doing this he kept them prisoners, and during seven months they were enabled to behold all the wonders of a voyage of twenty thousand leagues under the sea. One day, the 22nd of June, 1867, these three men, who knew nothing of the past history of Captain Nemo, succeeded in escaping in one of the Nautilus's boats. But as at this time the Nautilus was drawn into the vortex of the Maelstrom, off the coast of Norway, the captain naturally believed that the fugitives, engulfed in that frightful whirlpool, found their death at the bottom of the abyss. He was unaware that the Frenchman and his two companions had been miraculously cast on shore, that the fishermen of the Lafotten Islands had rendered them assistance, and that the professor, on his return to France, had published that work in which seven months of the strange and eventful navigation of the Nautilus were narrated and exposed to the curiosity of the public. For a long time after this, Captain Nemo continued to live thus, traversing every sea. But one by one his companions died, and found their last resting place in their cemetery of coral in the bed of the Pacific. At last Captain Nemo remained the solitary survivor of all those who had taken refuge with him in the depths of the ocean. He was now sixty years of age. Although alone, he succeeded in navigating the Nautilus towards one of those submarine caverns which had sometimes served him as a harbor. One of these ports was hollowed beneath Lincoln Island, and at this moment furnished an asylum to the Nautilus. The captain had now remained there six years, navigating the ocean no longer, but awaiting death, and that moment when he should rejoin his former companions, 
when by chance he observed the descent of the balloon which carried the prisoners of the Confederates. Clad in his diving dress, he was walking beneath the water at a few cables' length from the shore of the island, when the engineer had been thrown into the sea. Moved by a feeling of compassion, the captain saved Cyrus Harding. His first impulse was to fly from the vicinity of the five castaways, but his harbour refuge was closed, for in consequence of an elevation of the basalt produced by the influence of volcanic action, he could no longer pass through the entrance of the vault. Though there was sufficient depth of water to allow a light craft to pass the bar, there was not enough for the Nautilus, whose draught of water was considerable. Captain Nemo was compelled, therefore, to remain. He observed these men thrown without resources upon a desert island, but had no wish to be himself discovered by them. By degrees he became interested in their efforts when he saw them honest, energetic, and bound to each other by the ties of friendship. As if despite his wishes, he penetrated all the secrets of their existence. By means of the diving dress he could easily reach the well in the interior of Granite House, and climbing by the projections of rock to its upper orifice, he heard the colonists as they recounted the past, and studied the present and future. He learned from them the tremendous conflict of America with America itself for the abolition of slavery. Yes, these men were worthy to reconcile Captain Nemo with that humanity which they represented so nobly in the island. Captain Nemo had saved Cyrus Harding. It was he also who had brought back the dog to the chimneys, who rescued Top from the waters of the lake, who caused to fall at Flotsam Point the case containing so many things useful to the colonists, who conveyed the canoe back into the stream of the Mercy, who cast the cord from the top of Granite House at the time of the attack by the baboons, who made known the presence of Ayrton upon Tabor Island, by means of the document enclosed in the bottle, who caused the explosion of the brig by the shock of a torpedo placed at the bottom of the canal, who saved Herbert from certain death by bringing the sulphate of quinine, and finally it was he who had killed the convicts with the electric balls, of which he possessed the secret and which he employed in the chase of submarine creatures. Thus were explained so many apparently supernatural occurrences, and which all proved the generosity and power of the captain. Nevertheless, this noble misanthrope longed to benefit his protégés still further. There yet remained much useful advice to give them, and, his heart being softened by the approach of death, he invited, as we are aware, the colonists of Granite House to visit the Nautilus by means of a wire which connected it with the corral. Possibly he would not have done this had he been aware that Cyrus Harding was sufficiently acquainted with his history to address him by the name of Nemo. The captain concluded the narrative of his life. Cyrus Harding then spoke. He recalled all the incidents which had exercised so beneficent an influence upon the colony and in the names of his companions and himself, thanked the generous being to whom they owed so much. But Captain Nemo paid little attention. His mind appeared to be absorbed by one idea, and without taking the proffered hand of the engineer, "'Now, sir,' said he, "'now that you know my history, your judgment.' 
In saying this, the captain evidently alluded to an important incident witnessed by the three strangers thrown on board his vessel, and which the French professor had related in his work, causing a profound and terrible sensation. Some days previous to the flight of the professor and his two companions, the Nautilus, being chased by a frigate in the north of the Atlantic, had hurled herself as a ram upon this frigate, and sunk her without mercy. Cyrus Harding understood the captain's allusion, and was silent. "'It was an enemy's frigate!' exclaimed Captain Nemo, transformed for an instant into the Prince Dakar. "'An enemy's frigate! It was she who attacked me. I was in a narrow and shallow bay. The frigate barred my way, and I sank her.' A few minutes of silence ensued. Then the captain demanded, "'What think you of my life, gentlemen?' Cyrus Harding extended his hand to the ci-devant prince, and replied gravely, "'Sir, your error was in supposing that the past can be resuscitated, and in contending against inevitable progress. It is one of those errors which some admire, others blame, which God alone can judge. He who is mistaken in an action which he sincerely believes to be right may be an enemy, but retains our esteem.' Your error is one that we may admire, and your name has nothing to fear from the judgment of history, which does not condemn heroic folly, but its results. The old man's breast swelled with emotion, and, raising his hand to heaven, "'Was I wrong, or in the right?' he murmured. Cyrus Harding replied, "'All great actions return to God, from whom they are derived.' Captain Nemo, we, whom you have succored, shall ever mourn your loss. Herbert, who had drawn near the captain, fell on his knees and kissed his hand. A tear glistened in the eyes of the dying man. My child, he said, may God bless you. End of chapter